0: Loving Sairam and greetings from Prashanti Nilayam. We continue our study of Dharma Vahini by picking up as usual a few specific quotes from Swami's book and then trying to understand those quotes as best as we can. One point or remark that I often hear from devotees goes something like this. They say, listen, all this stuff about dharma that you are talking about goes back a long, long time. Life was very different then. This is the internet and globalization age. And these two phenomena have changed life for everyone on the planet beyond anything anyone could have imagined barely 30 years ago. That being the case, How can you apply something that might have been valid 4,000 years ago? Are you sure you have examined the applicability of those ancient concepts in the first place? Well, this is a good question, and since I hear this often, I did a bit of digging into Swami's book, and I came up with the following statement. Swami says, and I quote, The principles of dharma will not change to suit the convenience of man. Dharma is immutable. Dharma persists as Dharma then, now and forever. Of course, the practices and rules of applied Dharma might change according to the changing causes. But even then, those practices have to be tested on the basis of the Shastras. And not on the basis of advantage. End of quote. I think Swami's answer is loud and clear. Some of you might be disappointed to hear what Swami has to say. But before you jump to conclusions. I think we should first carefully study what Swami has said. What I mean is. That there are two key points involved here. The first is the basic principle And the second is the practical application of the basic principle. What Swami is saying is that the principle cannot change. But where rules for practical application are concerned, there is scope for adaptation. And Swami Himself has given a lead on this matter on many occasions. In fact, in ways that are almost unthinkable. I mean, take the chanting of the Gayatri Mantra. The scriptures of India strongly advocate the chanting of this mantra and in fact, Brahmins and Brahmacharis in particular were in those days expected to go through a prayer routine that called for the repeated chanting of this mantra during three prayer sessions a day. Once in the morning, once during midday, and once during sunset time. However, in those olden days, only Brahmins had the sanction to chant the Gayatri. Even Brahmin women were not permitted, nor were members of other caste, male or female. Now what did Swami do? He simply said, Gayatri is a prayer to the universal mother. No one can be forbidden from chanting it. Every human being, whether man or woman, and no matter what his or her faith is, has the fundamental right to chant the Gayatri anytime, anywhere, as many times as the person wishes. And he generously encouraged the chanting of the Gayatri and indeed the Vedas, not only by women, but in fact by people of all countries, all races, and belonging to all faiths. This is thus a remarkable example of maintaining the basic principle but at the same time adapting to changing times as required. Let me now give an example of my own, which I am sure would enable you to appreciate the argument even better. Take a simple matter like corruption. I am sure you would agree That corruption is against dharma at all times. No exemption can be imagined or can be sought on any ground. That's absolutely clear. The fundamental point is that dharma is an absolute value like satya also is. Absolute values always hold. They are eternal. That is what Swami is saying. And how can anyone take exception to that? Swami has made another important point which is that dharma being absolute it must be followed for its own sake and not because it would fetch this benefit or that reward. It is like duty which has to be performed no matter what. There is one other important point that Swami calls attention to. He says that these days Many people tend to feel that it is unfashionable to adhere to dharma and then they try to defend their position by scoffing at some of the associated rituals that were meant for a different day and age. This, to use a phrase that is commonly used in America, is like throwing the baby with the bath water. Yes, yes. Certain practices might have outlived their utility for sure. But on that basis, can one decry the fundamentals? Can honesty and integrity ever be dispensed with or be practiced selectively? How would we feel if we go to a well-known doctor expecting some honest advice and treatment for some ailment we have and then find ourselves being taken for a ride? Just to assure you that I am not making all this up, I mean people giving up dharma because of the fear that they might be considered old-fashioned, let me now offer you a direct quote from Swami. This is what Swami says, Quote, Nowadays, many educated persons have become afraid to stick firmly to dharma for it's being laughed at by their cynical friends. They have yielded to the crooked arguments of critics, and sold their heritage for trivial returns. End of quote. I am sure that while most of you listeners out there would readily accept that Dharma is an eternal value and that adherence to it is unavoidable, some listeners might have reservations about the consequences that follow when Dharma is violated. I am referring to the so called karmic aspects. And there might be others who would dismiss the notion that the one who upholds dharma is protected by the same dharma. As people generally say, look, this does not make any sense. Dharma is a concept, a principle. I agree it's a good principle and that it is desirable to adhere to dharma. But to declare that it provides safety and acts like an insurance, well, that defines rational logic. That is the way it might seem if one applies mere logic. But then, this kind of legal analysis overlooks a fundamental and crucial point, which is that dharma is another name for God. Thus, when one says that he who upholds dharma would in turn be protected by dharma, what one really means is that when one upholds dharma, God would without fail take care of that person if problems arise. Why? Because Dharma is God and God is Dharma. It is as straightforward as that. I know many might find it difficult to accept what I am saying. And that is precisely the reason why Heart to Heart has made it a point to carry what we call Dharma success stories. Please look them up. These are real-life stories narrated by people in the corporate sector and how they face great challenges while trying to be scrupulously honest and how Swami helped them to get out of the jam. At this juncture, I would like to bring up the linkages between the fundamental principle and application once more. My point is simply this. We should not automatically assume that all practices based on Dharma become outmoded with time and automatically require to be abandoned or modified. Let me take a particular issue that I realize might not go well with some of our younger listeners. This relates to the matter of dress. I shall begin this part of the discussion with a recall of something I read about five years ago in a Bangalore newspaper. The item was a letter to the editor by a young lady, maybe about 22 years or so of age, who was visiting the metro city, Bangalore, on a small holiday trip along with some of her friends. This group of girls were all from Gulbarga, a small town a few hundred kilometers to the north of Bangalore, and they were students of a medical college there. This student group was walking along Brigade Road a prominent shopping area in Bangalore. They were gazing at the displays in the window and whatnot. Something that most tourists do. However, for this particular girl, the writer of the letter to the editor, this was far from a pleasant experience. She said that all along, gangs of local youth, both boys and girls, of roughly the same age, were teasing her and even hurling Some kind of abuse at her. Why? Because she was dressed in a sari. That's why. This girl angrily asked in her letter, What wrong was I doing by wearing a sari? This is the dress my grandmother wore and also my mother. That is the dress millions and millions of women wear all over India. I was relentlessly teased for not wearing jeans and skimpy blouse. Is it a crime to wear a dress that is a native to this country and a proud reminder of our tradition? What's going wrong with this country when we cannot wear our own type of dress? And so on the letter went. I raise this question because this brings to the fore issues that link abstract principles to practical matters in such a way where sharp discrimination is required. What are the basic points and issues involved here? From the point of view of Vedanta, and that is also substantively what Swami also says, the points are as follows. 1. Dress is a must for all. But at the same time, it must be such as not to deflect the attention of others to one's body and one's youthful charm in particular. 2. This is not to say that one must swing to the other extreme by trying to look like an ascetic. Rather, dress like the face and deportment must reflect the personality of the person concerned, be it male or female. And when someone sees that person, the person who does so must automatically be filled with love and a sense of gentle reverence if the person is an elder or a sense of benevolence if the person is younger. To put it more explicitly, in the Indian tradition, for men, all women other than the wife were mothers if they were older, even by a single day, while all women younger were sisters. I remember how often late Mr. B.K. Narasimhan, who stepped into the shoes of Kasturi as the editor of Sanatana Sarthi, often used to tell me, that this was the most wonderful aspect of ancient Indian culture. 3. All the above leads to an important point, which is that principles often lead to certain practices, which become a part of the culture. Now, the word culture must be understood properly. Swami says that culture really means refinement, and a refined person conducts himself or herself with dignity especially in public. I mean, you can't have the president of a country acting like a joker, can you? Thus, observance of dharma sometimes imposes behavioral and other such norms on us, which we must respect. I am aware that all this would not cut much ice with many of today's younger generation, leading to wry smiles at best, and fury at the worst. But then consider the facts. These days, within a short space of about five or six years, there has been a huge cultural swing all over India, sweeping tens of millions, thanks to a massive exposure to modern influences in which the media is heavily involved. Many would like to brand me as a media basher, but before you do so, please hear me out. By the way, I am myself using the media radio. To get back to the point I was making, the pro-change people, and this includes the metro elite, who are in closer touch with world trends on all things, including fashions, foods, etc. The metro elite argue, we want to be trendy. If you do not like what we are doing, then shut your eyes. We have a right to our space, etc., etc. These days, when freedom is the buzzword, such arguments are eagerly lapped up, especially by the young people, and there are all kinds of groups to actively defend such rights. Okay, people claim they have rights, and let us suppose they do have it, and that those who do not like this should close their eyes, etc. But then, we must remember that there are consequences for sure. However, those consequences are not liked by the avant-garde crowd and they protest vehemently. Let me be more specific. Some months ago, New Year's night revelry in one of our big metros attracted a lot of guests, including many women from overseas a good many of them being NRIs or non-resident Indians. And they were dressed for the occasion, shall I say, which is a polite way of saying that the dress was far from suitable for walking on roads, especially at night. And on the roads were many youth, most of them from city slums and rural areas, who are not well up on the etiquette expected of city youth, well up on trendy things. Inevitably, there were many cases of improper behavior by the rowdy elements stalking the streets, to put it mildly. And all of this led to a huge furor in the English-language press. Some people went to the police and complained. And two people, a young man and a prominent socialite lady, even went to the chief minister of the state. Everyone All officials, policemen and the chief minister expressed regret over the incidents. When those who protested demanded to know why the police were so negligent in providing protection for late night strollers, the officials said, On revelry nights like this, most of the police force is out looking for drunken drivers. Lately there has been a sharp increase in drunken driving and in fact many have been killed as a result. On nights like this we have to be extra vigilant and that is why we could not deploy sufficient number of cops to the beat. This is a huge city and how many places can we cover? The young man and the socialized who went with him to complain felt bitter about the response. Following which this young man, highly educated and all that, wrote a blog, roundly abusing villagers and their total lack of culture, their inability to control themselves, etc. I don't wish to defend the perpetrators of indecent behavior, but at the same time I I would like to make a few remarks. Firstly, the furious and indignant writer did not make any attempt to understand the psychology of the slum youth. They do not have exposure to the sophisticated value system of the educated youth that allows them to walk around in erotic and provocative dresses, but at the same time demands that they remain untouched. I know you would be severely criticized for saying this, but there is such a thing called reflection-reaction-resound. If a society becomes very permissive and allows a lot of violence to be shown constantly in TV and films, and further allows violence to be built in heavily into every single video game, then can one expect the people to remain unaffected and go around like Mahatma Gandhi's? Similarly, if in the name of liberty, freedom and so on, one claims the right to print even in newspapers, pictures that are at best in poor taste but often border on the sheer vulgar, when courts rule that internet can carry porno, etc., then society has to pay the price in terms of promiscuity and all its consequences that hardly need to be repeated here. This is precisely where Swami's teaching assumes great importance. He says that whatever we as individuals do, We must take care to see that our actions do not disturb society in any way. However, these days, in the name of freedom of expression, personal liberty, etc., people claim all kinds of rights. At the same time, these very same people become very fussy about some things, the carbon footprints, etc. I do not know how you feel, but I am of the opinion that one cannot dial one's preferences claiming to act in the name of freedom of expression, etc., as and when convenient, and demand the right to do some things, even if it hurts the sensitivities of others. Sometimes this business of demanding rights goes a bit too far, I think. Perhaps I could give some examples to explain what I mean. Some time ago, a leading artist did some paintings that showed some of the goddesses regularly worshipped by the Hindus with scant clothing. This raised a huge protest, as is only to be expected. But the liberated and art-loving elite vehemently condemned the protests. And these protests were given a lot of prominence in the English press and English media in general, since it is packed with liberated souls who are champions of individual liberty, freedom of expression, etc., All these self-proclaimed rights are an extension of what is claimed in many other countries where artists feel they can draw and paint pictures that unquestionably would infuriate Muslims. Yet they insist on doing what they want to do, claiming rights in the name of freedom of expression, etc. I do not know who gives or grants these rights. But I would like to ask a simple question. When one knows for sure that large numbers of people would feel very much hurt, why then do something that is sure to offend people by depicting in a distorted manner things they hold dear? I do not understand how these artists can say, we have the right to do this. And if you protest, it simply means you have not evolved and understood anything about fundamental rights, artistic expression, etc., Well, they can claim all the rights and they can cry from rooftop about their rights. But people being what they are, it is to be expected some of the protesters in the fringes who cannot be expected to be reasonable would cross the limits of tolerant behavior and ugly consequences would ensue for sure. Far more than rights and liberties, what is needed is some more of humility and less of unnecessary provocation. Here is another simple example where there is unnecessary provocation. At first sight, it does not look like an issue connected with dharma, but something to do with current tense, compulsions and necessities. Yet, as I shall argue, there is an undercurrent of dharma. It is connected with an order. All this is connected with an order issued by the vice-chancellor of one of our universities, who one fine day said, Students should not bring cell phones to the class. Boy, was there a furor. But what was significant was that the issue was made into a national controversy by the media, English media. For the media, the issue was like a huge ice cream treat. Everyone went hammer and tongs for the VC. What the VC said in reply was, We are merely saying that you should deposit your cell phones when entering the class. We cannot have students carrying them into the class. To me, the VC's order seems very reasonable. But neither the students nor the parents should have anything of it. I mean, it's a fact that while the class is in progress, students are known to keep busy sending SMS messages and so forth. The VC was saying that students come to class for learning and they should focus on learning and learning alone. Prompted by the media, Parents who went on camera fumed. How can we stay in touch with our children? Supposing there is an emergency. Frankly, I did not at all find any of the many arguments trotted out meaningful or valid. I mean, when I was a student, there were no such things as even phones. And I don't think I was the worst for it. Of course, people say, come on, you old man, things are different now. I agree. But... I gather that the purpose of education has not changed. If we were to look at all this in terms of dharma, duty, culture and tradition, and by the way, culture and tradition cannot be directly disconnected from dharma, as some would like to have it. Knowledge is God's Saraswati, and learning is a sacred duty for a student. That being the case, I strongly feel that not only does the cell phone have no place in the class, But equally important is the matter of coming to class properly dressed. Incidentally, there was an equal furor with respect to the dress code prescribed, but I shall not go into that right now. As for the argument of parents wanting to get in touch with their children in an emergency, I ask, why can't the parent concerned just phone the college office and communicate the emergency? I think it's time to wind up. And as a parting comment, let me say that adherence to dharma is not optional. It is a must for all and no one, no one period is exempt. I do hope you appreciate that this series is being presented specifically to help all of us to make a strong commitment to dharma. Let us remember that God comes down in human form to help in the restoration of dharma to its rightful place. And when God comes, it does not mean that we all sit back and wait for God to do all the fixing, problem fixing that is, while we cheer like enthusiastic spectators. It is humans who mess up the situation by becoming slack about dharma. And it is our duty as humans to clean up the mess we have created. God is here to help us and to support us, but not for doing our job. By the way, this trend started a long time ago when Swami came as Krishna. Remember, Krishna did not fight in the Mahabharata war. Instead, He just lent support. God is here once again to do that, to give support to us. The question before us is, Do we want to do anything really serious about putting Dharma back on the glorious pedestal that is its rightful place? Or do we think God would take care of all that and all we have to do is to watch and cheer like we do while watching a football game? Think about it. Thanks for listening. Jai Sai Ram.